May be seated. All elementary age kiddos are welcome to go downstairs for kids' class. So welcome. Uh, we are still in the book of John. Welcome back to some of you who were gone a couple Sundays because of uh, spring break. We continue to go through the book of John, and uh, those sermons are online, and you can, can catch up. Uh, on a, a sermon that Dan Moylan preached, who's one of our elders, on John 5, and then Austin Kopak, who's on our staff, preached on John 6. And <clears throat> what we continue to find out, on, on one hand, the Gospel of John's pretty simple, uh, where uh, the, the whole point is to reveal Jesus so that people can believe, right? And so the book opens up with John saying, Jesus is... Uh, the Word made flesh, so he's, he's, he's the divine Son of God. Um, and then in, in chapter 2, we see Jesus revealing himself through a miracle, or what John calls a, a sign, and he turns water into wine, and it says the disciples believed. Uh, we see in chapter 3, Jesus revealing himself through his teaching to Nicodemus, who's like a really religious, ethical guy who needs to be convinced that he needs a, a divine Savior. Uh, the chapter 4, we see Jesus revealing through his teaching uh, himself to a Samaritan woman who is quasi-religious and not very ethical and probably doesn't even believe that she's worthy of being saved. And he reveals to her through, through, through truth uh, who he is. And we see her and her uh, Samaritan village uh, believe. And then in John chapter 5, uh, Jesus does something very controversial. He heals someone. Now, healing someone's not the controversial part. The reason it's controversial is because he heals them on the Sabbath. And the Jews had a lot of rules around the Sabbath, what you could do, what you could not do, and you couldn't heal people on the Sabbath according to their rules that they had added to the Old Testament law. And Jesus knows this, and in, in large part, he's picking a fight with the religious leaders. And so from, from chapter 5... Through chapter 9, you see this ramping up of the conflict between the religious leaders and Jesus. And we see that really heat up in chapter 7 and 8. And this is, this is what I, I want to take some time to look at, some of the different pieces in chapter 7 and chapter 8. Because what happens in the midst of all this conflict between the religious leaders and between Jesus is not only is it a ramp up to eventually him being crucified, but it's also an environment that reveals the identity of Jesus in a, more, in a clearer way, right? The, the reveal just continues to expand. And not only that, but the identity of people who do not believe in Jesus is revealed. And not only that, the identity of people who do believe in Jesus is revealed. And so these are, these are the things that we want to look at uh, today. Uh, is the, if, if you're taking notes, you kind of have three columns, right? The identity of Jesus, the identity of those who do not know Jesus, do not believe in Jesus, and those that do believe in Jesus. And as we go through these threads in uh, John 7 and 8, you're just going to have a, a running list that you're going to add to as you go. The identity of Jesus, identity of those who do not believe in Jesus, the identity of those who do believe in Jesus. So the background 
for understanding really John 6, 7, and 8 is a festival that the, the, the Jews uh, celebrated every year called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And what they were celebrating and remembering was the wandering around in the desert that Israel did for 40 years. So they recognize, they remember, they celebrate the giving of the manna, right? this bread from heaven that came down. And, of course, you've got Jesus saying, I am the, the bread, right? I'm the bread from heaven. Uh, they're also celebrating the miraculous giving of water in the wilderness. And you have Jesus saying, I'm, I'm the living water. Anyone who comes to me will never thirst. They're also uh, they're celebrating the pillar of fire at night that God provided to lead them in the darkness. And so you have Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. So he's piggybacking on all these images that everyone is already thinking about, they're reading scripture about, they're hearing sermons about, and Jesus is saying, all of that was pointing forward to me. The manna from heaven, the water from the rock, uh, the, 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 the pillar of fire at night, all of that was eventually pointing to me. And so he's, he's piggybacking on these, these images. Um, as he's doing these teachings and doing these miracles, it, it, it really pushes people to begin asking the question, who is Jesus? And that's what he wants. He wants them asking that question. And so we, we, we pick up uh, John 7, verse 14, and you, you want to look uh, along with me in the Bible, it's there on the floor or on your phone. A lot of this will be on the screen if you, if you uh, get lost because we're going to jump around some. But John 7, verse 14, says, About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he began teaching. And the Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? So they're asking the question, Who is this guy? He's really good. His teaching is really powerful, but he doesn't have any credentials. He doesn't have any degrees on the wall. He hasn't studied under anyone. So how could he be this good? And on top of that, he's, he's doing miraculous things. Signs. So the, so the questions are being asked, and, and, and Jesus begins to answer that question. John 7, verse 16, Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but is who he has sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent me is, sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? So he's revealing his identity. So he, he, he's, he's saying, I was sent by God the Father. Right? So that's the first clue. That's in your first column there, the identity of Jesus. He's sent by God the Father. Right? He says, my teaching's not mine, but his who sent me. Clue number two of Jesus' identity is that he always does the, the will of the Father. He doesn't just teach the truth, he lives the truth. He teaches it perfectly, and he lives it perfectly. Right? Verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own. Right? 
He's implying, I'm the one who's living this out. I'm, I'm living the truth that I'm teaching. And he's speaking in third person, which is sometimes hard to understand. But the reason he's doing that is because whenever he talks in first person, they want to throw rocks at him. Okay? And so he does this, this, this kind of code language where he's like the one, the one who follows all the laws perfectly. Well, who's that? That's him. <laughs> but he's speaking in third person. So sometimes I, that may be helpful for you to, to kind of unpack some of the things that he's, he's saying. That, that why, why don't he just come out and say it, right? Uh, b- because they, they actually like, try to kill him in that moment, which you'll, you, you'll see here at the end of chapter 8. He's saying there's no falsehood in him. Zero. Everything he says, he does. Complete integrity. Complete authority. And he says anyone who's like that, who knows God's truth and does it perfectly, will know he's legitimate. They will be tuned in to the God frequency, and they'll know that he is authentic. In contrast, the identity of the crown, right? Again, verse 19, has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? That's your second column of notes, okay? The, the crowd has the law, but they don't, they don't keep it, right? They, they are glory-hogging, lip-service-giving lawbreakers, that's who the crowd is. They're taking glory that was meant for God, and they're absorbing it. They're supposed to be mirrors, and they're absorbing it into themselves. They're taking the glory. And here they are. They have the law of God. but They know what they're supposed to do, but they don't follow it. This is, this is their identity. We do this. We do this. If I was to take you know, a vote, like who, who thinks that Christians should be sexually pure both in their actions and in, in their thoughts, all in favor? Uh, mo- most everyone in the room like, I, right? But then this week, right, some will be looking at porn. So, some uh, will, will, will be being physically intimate with someone who's not their, their spouse. Uh, some will be thinking about things in, in a lustful way, even though we would all say, absolutely, sexual purity, both in action and in thought. Or if I said, should a Christian be honest, never lie, all in favor, most of the room would say, absolutely. Yet some of us will lie this week, or at, at the very least, we're going to diminish things that make us look bad, and, and we're going to accentuate things that make us look Good. Or if I ask, should we be generous? Right? Should, we, should we be generous to, to the church and generous to uh, the poor, all in favor? Should Christians be like that? Most of the room's like, aye, yes, absolutely. But, but then when we, when, when we leave this place, or we're walking past the basket in the back, right? We're saying, not this week. <laughs> not going to be generous this week. No, things are tight. I can't, can't, I can't do that. Right? I'm not going to do that. So we do this. We have the law. We know what's right, but we can't keep it. This is the identity of the crown. Throughout John 7, 
there's, there's these questions in the crowd, right? They're, they're, they're saying, do the authorities think he's the Christ? If they don't, wouldn't they arrest him? Like, what's going on here? Is he the Christ? Is he not the Christ? It's, it's like the biggest thing going at the Feast of Tabernacles that year. Everyone's talking about Jesus. Everybody's asking the questions. They're asking about his, his town of origin. They're saying, well, he's from Nazareth in Galilee. I think I read in the Bible that the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem, but he's not from Bethlehem, is he? Well, maybe he is. So everyone is confused. Everyone's asking the questions like, who is he? Is he the Christ? Is he the Messiah? And, and, and again, this, this just begs for, for answers, and answers are given uh, in the midst of the conflict between Jesus and the, the religious leaders. And so the religious leaders get so upset that Jesus is really kind of taking center stage that uh, they finally have had enough, and they send soldiers to arrest Jesus. And so as, as, as this is happening, um, they, they then return, and here's what happens. John 7, verse 43, says there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. And the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. So soldiers show up to arrest Jesus, and they're so impressed. (laughs) They won't do it. They go back to the Pharisees. They report back. And the Pharisees now say, instead of what Jesus says, which is the crowd has the law, but they don't do it, they say, they don't know the law, and they're accursed. As opposed to the Pharisees, who know the law. But then you read the very next few verses. It's interesting. They, they know it, but they don't do it. John seven fifty. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, and said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. It's a very interesting illustration of knowing the law but not doing it. Nicodemus calls them out. He says, well, you know the law, and you're not doing it. In this moment, you're not even giving this guy a, free, you know, a, a fair trial. And our law says, give him a, a fair trial. And they say, you don't know your scripture. Right? Messiah doesn't come from Galilee. Don't confuse us with the facts. Right? And so, again, just illustrating that identity of being those who know the law but cannot follow the law. Well, things heat up even more. Eventually, the Pharisees decide for an all-out confrontation. They're not going to send soldiers to do the work. They're going to do it themselves. And so you flip over to John 8, verse 13. John 8, verse 13. You have this confrontation right here. The, The Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself and your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. 
Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it's not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it's written that the testimony of two people is true. I'm the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. All right? So they're watching Jesus behave in a very authoritative way. He's giving authoritative teaching. He's, he's saying all kinds of very, very, very controversial things. He, he's saying things like, I'm the light of the world. Right? Like, that's a big claim. And so they're saying, okay, Mr. Big Claim, who are you? What is your identity that would give you the right to exercise that kind of authority? Right? So, so as an illustration, so if, if law enforcement wants someone to stop, they're supposed to say, police, freeze. Right? You've seen enough crime shows. That's what they do, right? Police, freeze. That's an identity and an authority, right? First, identify, and then you actually have the authority to say, stop. And so they're saying to Jesus, right, you, you're, 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 you're pushing around all this authoritative truth and saying all these things. Who are you? And they're saying, you have no one to vouch for you. You have no credentials on your office wall. There's no one saying that you have the right to say these things. And so Jesus, it's, this is a really clever way to, to handle these guys. He says, okay, your law says that I need to be established by two witnesses. Well, here are my two witnesses. Me and God the Father. How about that? Those are my two witnesses. And then he says, actually, while I'm very, very happy that God the Father is willing to vouch for me, I don't need him to vouch for me. I, I can be my own witness. Now, what is he saying there? Here's what he's saying. He's saying that he is God. There's nothing, there's no one behind him who's more powerful, who, who has more authority, that can sort of back him up. He doesn't need that. He's God. Right? Jesus could never say, I swear to God, I'm going to do this. Right? right? I'm not recommending that we say that either, but, but it, think about what we're saying when we say that. We're saying there's something more powerful, someone more powerful behind me that's sort of vouching for me. I swear to God, I'm going to follow through on this. Jesus could never swear to God. He is God. There's nothing, there's no one behind him that authenticates him. And so this adds to our list of the identity of Jesus, right? That he, he, he's been sent by God the Father, that, that he speaks the truth of God, that he perfectly lives the truth of God. Actually, he is God. Now, we should have known that from the earlier clues, right? Because no one speaks the truth and lives the truth perfectly except God. So he was already telling us that he was divine, that there's no falsehood in him. That, that right there was a divine claim. But here he expands it even more. He's also saying that the Father and the Son are two different persons. Did you catch that? While here he is making a divine claim about himself, he's, he's, he's distinguishing himself from the Father when he says things like, I am the Father who sent me. This is where Christians get the doctrine of Trinity 
that there is one God, but there's three persons. Now, in this section, he's not talking about God the Spirit yet, but, but he is talking about God the Father and God the Son. And so he's revealing some things about the nature of God by saying that, yes, Jesus is divine, the Father is divine, and they are different persons. Now, the Pharisees play dumb. They're like, well, who's your father? Who's this father you're talking about? Right? And Jesus, instead of dealing with that, he shifts the conversation to talk about their identity, which is, is very helpful. So John 8, verse 21. Remember, and we've been talking about the identity of the crowds, sort of the glory-hogging, uh, lip service giving, law breaking. Uh, and so here's what he says. He says, verse 21, so he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? And he said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You're of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So here's what he's doing. He's contrasting his identity with their identity. He's saying, I'm going away. I'm going to leave this earthly existence, and you can't come. It's a very sobering statement saying, you can't come. And why can't they come? They can't come because of sin. They can't come because of sin. This is the ultimate consequence of sin, is the separation of human beings from God. That sinners can't dwell in unity with Father, Son, and Spirit. This is the ultimate consequence of sin. Of sin. There's many consequences of sin. There's guilt, the knowledge that, that I owe a debt for my sin and I can't pay it. There's shame. There's a desire to hide because of what I've done. There's sadness because I can't deal with the guilt and I can't deal with the shame. And so I feel sadness. There's enslavement. That even after all the guilt and the shame and the sadness, I can't stop sinning. I'm enslaved to that. And on top of that, it doesn't just affect me. It affects other people. It affects the relationships. And there's brokenness in those relationships because of the sin that I'm enslaved to. But all of that, as bad as it is, is not the worst I've noticed people like to say this phrase. Oh, that's the worst. All right. This really is the worst. This statement that Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot come. That's the worst. We who were created to be in relationship with God, the triune God, Father, Son, Spirit, to not be able to be with them, that is the worst. And so this is why the one from above 
is step down to have a conversation with those who are below. <laughs> it's because he's come to do something about that predicament. That, that the identity of being one who is a lip service giving, glory hogging, law breaker <laughs> who's separated from God, that's got to change. It must change. And Jesus, even in that moment where he's in conflict with the religious leaders, he's being hated on, he's being misunderstood, he's being disrespected. In the midst of that, he's holding out the gospel. Did you catch that? I'll read it again. Verse 24 of John 8. I told you you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. He's offering them the gospel in that moment. He's saying, where I'm going, you can't come unless you believe. If you believe, you can come. (laughs) You can go from being just a bottom dweller to one who can reside in community with Father and Son and Spirit. Such an offer of grace. It's such a moment of mercy by Jesus. So this is part of the good news of the gospel, right, is your identity can change. You can go from from being that glory-hogging, lip-service-giving, law-breaking person to having a new identity through faith in Jesus. And further down in John 8, he begins to unpack what that new identity would be. And so this is like your third column, okay? So you got your first column, identity of Jesus, identity of those who don't believe in Jesus, Now we're moving into the identity of those who do believe in Jesus. John 8, verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, okay? So they they moved over to column three. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father and you do what you've heard from your father. So he adds to the identity of those who don't believe in Jesus. So it's worse than they actually thought. It's worse than uh, the, the fact that they're glory hogging and lip service giving, law breaking people. They're actually also enslaved to sin. They're enslaved to sin. They can't stop sinning. Their identity is a sinner. They don't just have sinful behavior that they need to deal with and they need to manage. They actually, as an identity, are a sinner, or better said, a slave to sin. Now think about identity as a slave. You have no self-determination. You have no self-determination. Somebody tells you when to get up. Somebody tells you what to do, when to eat, what to eat, when to rest, When not to rest, you fall asleep, not having been able to to determine anything about your life. You wake up not being able to 
to determine anything about your life. This is every human who's apart from Christ. And the master is sin. That's what he's saying. Again, that sin is more than just behavior. Uh, it is a condition. Now, not saying you don't have control over some of the things in your life, some of the time, but no human has control over all of the things in their life all of the time. We're enslaved. Even when we know what we should do, we don't do it because we're enslaved to sin. Our culture uses different language. We use the, the more therapeutic language of addiction or disease. But to some degree, our, our world gets this. If you've ever read the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and you've read step one, it says, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Enslavement. That's what it's talking about. And it's talked about as a disease. And there are biological propensities that, that definitely that is, is, is part of the experience of alcoholism. But what's underneath alcoholism and every other destructive behavior that humans participate in is the condition of sin. That apart from Christ, we're enslaved to sin. But the slave can be set Free. Hear it again. Verse 31 of John 8. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The glory-hogging, lip-service-giving, law-breaking slaves to sin can be set free through the truth. Now what? What is this truth? Uh, so I, my undergrad was at the University of Texas in the middle of campus. Is this massive tower. And on front of the tower is this quote. And it says, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Jesus gets no credit for that phrase on the front of the tower. But that's where they got it. They got it from John 8. Now, I don't think the University of Texas is thinking the same thing that Jesus is thinking when Jesus says, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. University of Texas at Austin is thinking, it's knowledge. You need knowledge. The disease is ignorance, and the cure is education. This, and this, right, this is the gospel of education, Right? As, as Westerners especially, we've bought into this. We have put our faith in this gospel of truth, of education. Now, education can help, no doubt about it, in a lot of ways. Right? You can't even read your Bible if you don't have an education and can read. Right? So, so absolutely, it, helps. It, can, it can also hurt. I've, I've known lots of highly educated people that, were unkind and not generous and not very fun to be around. That even though they had the truth, so to speak, 
The truth had not set them free. So while Jesus is definitely not talking about something that's less than information, he's talking about something that's more than information. So, so here, again, what he says down in verse uh, 35 of John 8, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, wait a minute. Jesus, didn't you say the truth sets you free? Then a few verses later, you said the son sets you free? Which is it? Oh, the son is the truth. Right? That's what he's saying. That, that Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the one who sets you free. Now, again, it's not less than knowledge. You, you need to believe some propositional truth, some information, but it's a way more than that. It's way more than knowing some information. It's actually knowing God through faith in Christ. That when you believe, you put your faith in this truth that is the Son of God, Jesus, you are in union with God. Jesus is no longer saying to us, where I'm going, you cannot come. He's saying, welcome to the table. Welcome to the family. By believing in the truth, by believing in the Son, our identity shifts from being glory-hogging, lip-service-giving, law-breaking, slaves to sin, to being sons and daughters of God through belief in Christ. That is our new identity. He, he, he goes on talking about identity in John 8, 37. He says, uh, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your Father. Now he's setting them up for another conversation about their identity. He's saying that God the Father, who's Jesus' Father, is not their Father. I want you to see that because a lot of times Christians and, and others, uh, they, they say, well, we're all God's children. Everyone on the planet is all God's children. Well, in a sense, that's true. We're all creations of God, we're all image bearers of God. Okay, so in that sense, absolutely, we're children of God. But in another sense, we're not all children of God. Only those who have believed in Jesus have been reconciled with the Father, and their identity has changed to being a child of God. And he's letting them know they haven't moved over into column three yet. They're still in column two. That they are not children of the Father now, he then reveals their true pedigree. Now, this, this is oh, highly confrontational. Uh, John eight forty four, He says, you are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Wow. There's a lot in there. I'm not going to uncover every stone. But he's saying it's even worse than you thought. You're not just glory-hogging, lip-service-giving, law-breaking, slaves to sin. You're children of Satan. 
This is your identity outside of Christ. He's saying there's a cosmic component to your identity. He's not saying that they're getting up every morning, they're reading the satanic Bible, and they're saying prayers to Satan, okay? That's not what they're doing. They're doing something even worse. They're taking religion, they're taking God's Bible, and they're exploiting it to serve themselves. Even worse, right? He's saying, you're you're children of the devil. You're you're doing his bidding. This This is your identity. Uh, he goes on to, to, to let them know, again, that they can be free from that identity through faith in the Son. To finish up, one of the biggest reveals, biggest reveals in this book is, is the end of John chapter 8. And he's having this conversation with them about their identity, and they keep saying, we're not children of the devil, we're children of Abraham. And, and, and so Jesus does this thing in verse 56. <laughs> I love this moment. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it, and he was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Here's what he's doing. He's he's saying 2,000 years before his birth, where Abraham is is following God and looking forward to God's redemption, and and he's saying, Abraham couldn't wait for me to show up. And they're like, but you're not even 50. And he says, well, that's because I am, and he uses this personal name that was given to Moses for God at the burning bush. It was a name that was so holy for for the Jews that they refused to even speak it out loud. When they were writing it, uh, before they would get to, in, in the script, before they would get to the name, they would stop, they would wash their hands, and they would write the name, Yahweh. And then they would wash their hands again and they would continue writing. This is how holy and sacred this name, this personal name given to them through Moses at the burning bush. And Jesus says, that's me. That's me. Now here's one of those places where he is direct. He's not using the third person. He's using the first person and he's saying, I am the great I am. I'm the one that spoke to Moses at the burning bush. I'm the one who has been walking with Israel all these days. I'm the one who's now become flesh, and I want to take you with me, but if you don't believe in me, I won't be able to take you with me. And you know what they do? You can see it in the text. They pick up stones to throw it at him. They know exactly what he's saying. And at that point, they realize he's doing more than just breaking a few Sabbath rules. They consider him to be a blasphemer, to be saying he's God. And they absolutely want to kill him. And honestly, if they would have stoned him to death that day, it would have been a mercy. Because not too long after that, he's going to be hung on a cross and crucified. The great I am. 
the one who, who spoke the, the, the creation into existence, has become a creation, and is hung on a cross so that those who were not able to go with him could believe in him and they could go with him. If you're here this morning and, and you're not a Christian, you're hearing the call to believe, to believe in the one who has died in your place on the cross so that your sins could be forgiven, so your identity could be radically changed from one who may know what's right but can't do it to one who has been rescued from the truth, with, the, with the truth of the gospel and has now been forgiven and has been made a child of God through faith in Christ. Many traditions throughout the church recite this creed. It's called the Apostles' Creed and uh, something they would do every, every week. This is the, sort of the second section in the, in the creed and it's about belief in Jesus Christ and it reads like this, I believe in Jesus Christ his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. You've got to believe that. But it's more than just information that you sort of check the box on. It's, it's belief that that is your only hope, that there is no other way for you to shift from being one who dwells below to being able to be one who dwells with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, both now and forever. So again, I'm exhorting you to believe, to believe in what Christ has done for you on the cross. And for those who have believed. This is a reminder of our identity. You're not a slave to sin. You're a son. You're a daughter of God the Father through faith in the Christ. You've been indwelt by the powerful Holy Spirit. And so when we do sin, we're not being who we are. And so part of why we come here is be reminded, oh, that's who I am. I forgot. I, I defaulted back to my old identity, my previous identity. I'm not that. And we confess. We're not confessing because we're afraid we're going to get made into a slave again. We're, we're confessing because we know we're a son, we're a daughter, and we can confess freely and know that we're in this relationship with God the Father by the grace of the cross. We're also reminded of the ways that we've actually obeyed the law. We've obeyed the Scripture. We've been able to exhibit attitudes and actions in our lives, and we know where that came from. It didn't come from a bunch of hard effort only. It, it, it came from faith. It came because our identity has been changed by grace through faith, and so we celebrate that. We, we, we have praise and thanksgiving that rises out of anything that was actual obedience to the Scripture, to the truth. This is what happens when we come to this table, is it not? We come to this table and, and we're reminded on, of, of what it took for our identity to be changed. Part of what Jesus is doing when he, when he welcomes us to this table is he's saying, we're going to dine forever. You who once were below and couldn't come with me, you're now, you're with me if you've believed, if you've put your faith 
in Christ. And what, what of Christ? What truth of Christ? The truth of the gospel, right? We're reminded that, that as Jesus took bread, he broke it. He gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He's wanting us to go back to the truth. What is this truth about the Son of God? In the same way, he took the cup, and after he blessed it, he gave it to them, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sin. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. Those of us, we, we, we were enslaved to sin, condemned by sin, no longer. Not because we tried really hard to get out of it, but because we received the free gift of grace and we were forgiven and are no longer under the the punishment of sin, nor are we under the power of sin. And so in this new identity, we we can, can, can move forward and grow in that grace, step by step, praising and thanking God for those places in our lives where we've seen victory of that grace, and confessing where we haven't, and asking for forgiveness. Again, not so we don't shift back into an old identity, but because we have this secure identity of being a child of God. So if you're here this morning and you are a son or daughter of God the Father through your faith in God the Son and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, we welcome you at this table. That may have happened in the last 30 seconds. Or some of you have you've moved over, you've crossed over the line. You've realized what your identity was, and you wanted to be set free, and you've asked Christ to forgive you and bring you into that new identity, you're welcome at the table. You're welcome to to celebrate with praise and thanksgiving of what he's done. Others of you, you, you're just beginning to explore. We're really glad you're here. And I want to encourage you to continue to to explore, to ask the hard questions. This is kind of a a, a difficult, I think, this is kind of a Bible nerd Sunday, okay? I get that. We got to have some of those every once in a while. But we're looking at a a large piece of scripture. We're looking at threads and connecting dots. And some of you are going, man, I'm lost. Uh, I I get it. But if you've begun to explore, you've begun to, to ask questions, I want to encourage you to continue. We're really glad that you're here. And I'll be around after the service if you want to continue to talk and ask, ask a question of me. I'm happy to do that or maybe someone else in the room. But during this time, if you would just remain in your seat and to pray and to think about what you've been hearing. So let's, let's pray. God, we give you thanks. You are such a good and loving Father and has sent your Son to die in our place, to change our identity from one who is below to being able to reside with you above. And in some way, we're having a taste of that in this moment as we dine with you, taking the bread and taking the cup. And we long for the day where this kingdom is fully restored, Lord. But we're grateful for what we know of it now and the identity that you've given us by grace. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've never taken communion,